This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. Elliot, I really enjoyed the interview we were going to get to with Raymond Berry. I mean, he talked to us for one hour, and it was story after story. Well, it goes back to the Baltimore Colts of John Ioannidis in the 1950s, and he coached the team that lost to the 1985 Chicago Bears in the Super Bowl. That's how I remember him. You remember him playing? I remember him playing. He was a great receiver. But let's get right to our interview with Raymond Berry. How did you end up at SMU? Uh... Did they pay the most? Did they pay the most money back in the day? Uh, well, actually, uh, the uh, the Ron Meyer era brought in the SMU payroll. That that happened in uh, a little before then. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I was a little before then, but uh, yeah, I got ten dollars a month for laundry. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's ten dollars for ten dollars. <laughs> Yeah, we had you had ten ten dollars laundry money every month. <laughs> now, you didn't start in high school until you were a senior. Did you not get along with the coach? Well, every once in a while he'd whip <laughs> my butt. He's my dad. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm going. What? I'm going. What did you do to upset your father? That he says, "Okay, I'm not starting until he's a senior." Well, actually, it was very simple. Uh, I wasn't big enough or good enough, and uh, by the time I was a senior, there wasn't money anybody else there, so I got a starting position at 150 pounds. But that was, that was a bruising six foot two, 150 pounds, right? Well, I was about five foot ten in those days, uh, but I oh. had a size twelve foot. <laughs> my my nickname in high school was. You ready for this? It was skis. <laughs> well, and there wasn't any snow. There wasn't any snow in Paris either. I was going to say, you know, not a whole lot of, uh, of skiing going on in that part of Texas, I don't think. No, none, none whatsoever. So you played, so, you played yeah, both yeah, ways in college, right? Well, uh, my junior, senior year, I was uh, the left end. And uh, we ran a straight T formation, uh, no split receivers whatsoever. And we went both ways, played uh, offense and defense. And I was the uh, left defensive end, which in today's terminology would be uh, an outside linebacker. Uh, I was on the end of the line, but I played in a three-point stance and, uh, most of the time. So Forrest Gregg and I played side-by-side there for two years together. and uh, But we went... Uh, we went both offense and defense in those days. We didn't throw the ball any. We just ran, ran the ball, and from a straight T formation, played good defense. So, did you enjoy defense or offense more? Oh, I loved to play defense. I was a, a natural defensive player, and uh, that was really, uh, you know, what I liked to do. I didn't know anything about, you know, being a receiver because we never threw any, and. Uh, I didn't get introduced to the passing game until, uh, you know, I got into uh, pro football with Baltimore. Yeah, I see you only caught 33 uh, passes in college. I mean, that's two games nowadays. Well, I've caught 33 passes in two years. Uh, my junior year and senior year, between the two of them, uh, I think that was right. Uh, no, we didn't. We just didn't throw uh, much at all. We ran the ball and played defense. So when Baltimore drafts you, do they say, okay, we, we have ourselves a future Hall of Fame receiver? Or, or with any idea what their thinking was when they did draft you? Well, I'll put it this way. If they, uh, if they thought it was a future Hall of Famer, they certainly did underpay me. <laughs> <laughs> I made uh, $10,000 in my first two years. That was... Uh, and I, and I was one of the higher paid guys. They did wait till round twenty, right? Back in the day when the NFL had, you know, twenty plus rounds. Did well, you I think was you would 20th, be drafted? Uh, yeah, I was a. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was a twentieth round draft pick. That was the year they drafted thirty thirty players. So they took me uh, on the twentieth round uh, after I finished my fourth year in college, which was. Uh, I was a junior college transfer, and uh, so I actually went five years to college. And 
My junior year at SMU, that was my fourth year in college. I was eligible for the draft, so they drafted me in the 30th round. When you got drafted, did they have basically plans for you to be their receiver or on defense, or basically it was just wherever they could find a spot for you? No, they, they drafted me to play offense. And so you, you get to training camp, and what's that experience like for you? Well, it wasn't any fun whenever you're uh, expecting to get cut any time. And uh, the uh, only thing saved me, uh, and actually it's the only reason why I ever got to play in the NFL, is uh, I happened to arrive in Baltimore at the right time, at the right place, with the right people. I happened to arrive in Baltimore when they had no veteran receivers. I arrived in Baltimore whenever that team had only been in existence one year. They had no veteran group, and uh, they had no real veteran receivers. And So my rookie year, there were 13 of us who uh, made uh, the team out of a 33-man roster. And uh, it was a perfect I couldn't have made it anywhere else if I'd gone in the league. I wouldn't even have lasted. Uh, but they didn't have anybody, so I got to play. I, I got to be starter, and I played 12 games, and uh, and I ended up catching a tremendous number of passes. I caught 13 passes in 12 games. Uh, are, you, are you good at math? Won a game. <laughs> <laughs> I, learned something from, I learned something from Sesame Street. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I learned something from Sesame Street. Oh, uh, well, good, good. I, I thought maybe you might catch that one. And, uh, so uh, that was my production. Uh, and uh, I didn't know my butt from first base about running pass routes, about getting away from man-to-man coverage, about how to – I didn't know anything about the passing game and uh, how to get open or anything. I did have a natural pair of hands, and I could catch. And uh, I could run and jump and – at 185 pounds, that was my uh, uh, that was uh, my credentials, and so. Uh, but I did get at the right place because there wasn't any veteran players, and I got to play a lot. Uh, my rookie year, I started all year, and uh, so I did start learning the game. And when I came back my second year, I was due to be replaced and due to get cut. They drafted two All-Americans. Uh, to uh, fill my position. So I, when I came to camp my second year, uh, I knew I wasn't going to re- be around long. How did you- and then along, along comes this guy who was, uh, I think, the previous season with the Pittsburgh Steelers and didn't make much of an impression. A guy by the name of Unitas. Yeah, I forget his name. He was some free agent quarterback. <laughs> I, he, he had a, had a, I remember he had a flat-top haircut, you know, and and, and he wore high top uh, football shoes, yeah, and, yeah, and you look at the guy, and it, and you say to yourself, "Here's the most unathletic quarterback I've ever seen." Well, that uh, <laughs> but but he could pass. Well, I tell you, if you would have saw both of us in training camp from 1956, you would have you may have gone away sobbing. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, we, we were Colts fan. <laughs> we were we were two pitiful cases of football players. Good grief. And, uh, well, fortunately, we had a coach named Weeb Eubank. That he saw something nobody else did. Uh, he saw something that we didn't know anything about, and I'm glad he did. Well, you guys are more athletic than Art Donovan, or in better shape. <laughs> well, uh, Art Donovan is a totally different case. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he couldn't do anything really but eat and play football, and, uh, but he could play football real good, and he certainly could eat. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, but he couldn't run any. But he didn't have to play defensive tackle if he could just take three steps one way or one or the other. That's all he needed. How soon did you know that Johnny and I guess was somebody special? I don't think I really knew it. Uh, you know, I certainly didn't know it that year. Uh, John made the team uh, because uh, he was a backup quarterback when we went into that second season. That was 1956. That was my second year. It was his second mm-hmm. year. You know, he had been cut by the Steelers the year before. So, But he made the team as a free agent quarterback because uh, we needed a backup to George Shaw. George Shaw had been a number one draft pick um, who played, you know, the year, my rookie year, and uh, I think he was rookie of the year in the NFL. And uh, 
he was a really great athlete. Uh, he got a severe knee injury in uh, mid-season that year, and John Unanis uh, was on the bench and came in to to play. Uh, we were playing Chicago Bears up in Chicago, and George got this severe injury. And uh, Unanis comes in and uh, he threw a touchdown pass on his first uh, first completed pass. The, the touchdown went to the Chicago Bears, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that was his first completed wow. NFL pass. <laughs> who, inter- who intercepted it? Do you remember? I don't remember. Some defensive corner out there for Chicago that probably got a raise in salary the, in the offseason. But well, he picked it, he, off, he picked it off. He knew after that pass, he had to be better. Uh, Things had to get better Yeah. But, you know, um, that was his first completed NFL pass. And uh, if you had been a close observer that day, you may have picked up on something that nobody, I don't think, really recognized. And that was uh, John through that interception. He's a free agent trying to hang on in the NFL, never gets to play, finally gets to play, throws a touchdown pass to the Bears on his first play. And then the rest of the game, he just goes about his business uh, like nothing ever happened. And what you were getting an insight into was this guy's uh, mental toughness and competitiveness and confidence. And uh, he had it in spades, and uh, that was uh, a real tip-off because it didn't phase him a bit. He went about... Had a very decent day that day, and the Chicago Bears were ended up being world champions that year. Now, the stories of you and, and United's practicing timing patterns and staying after practice are legendary. How how long would you stay after practice and work on your game? Uh, we'd stay out there 30, 40 minutes, uh, and uh, it happened uh, quite accidentally, really. Uh, because my, uh, you know, as I said, when I came back for my second year, I was uh, due to be replaced. They had drafted two All-Americans for my position when I came to camp, and uh, it was just a matter of time before they were going to give me a bus ticket out. And uh, so I was, uh, I had nothing in my life with football. That's what I was living for. It was the most important thing in my life, and I loved to play. And my world was getting ready to end, and... Uh, John Unitas came as a free agent. He'd already been cut the year before, and he loved to play football. He didn't ever have anything else on his mind but that. So we were two highly motivated uh, players that loved to play, wanted to play, and didn't want to leave. And so, and we Bubank, uh see, one of the things that uh, I think someone like yourself needs to understand is that in this highly uh, what's the right word? Highly organized day of modern football. I don't know how many coaches even allow time for players to work on their own after practice. Every place I ever coached after you know I left the game as a player and started coaching, uh, uh, the head coaches they get so carried away with what they're doing that they they don't ever allow any time for a receiver and quarterback to go out there and work on their own. A lot of coaches don't even want them working on their own. They're afraid something get be out of their control, so they don't uh, encourage it and discourage it and actually just don't allow it. And uh, Wee Bubank was totally the opposite. He had learned under Paul Brown with the Cleveland Browns that Paul Brown always allowed his receiver and quarterback to spend as much time on the field on their own after practice as they wanted to. And, uh, we saw the great results of that uh, with those great Cleveland Brown passing games of the uh, Paul Brown era. And uh, so he uh, he encouraged it, allowed it, and gave us the time to do it. And we stayed out there as long as we wanted to. And uh, we worked uh, and got to know each other, and we, uh, you know, uh, developed a timing that you just can't get any other way. And uh, what I later realized as I processed this matter was that there is a uh, confidence factor involved in this 
something clicks in that quarterback's head. When he works with a receiver on that type of a basis for a long period of time, he he gets to where he just knows that receiver. He knows where, when he's going to break. He knows those timing of his plays. And he has great communication with him, and he has great confidence. And uh, in the heat of a game, I think without question, a quarterback invariably will go to the receiver that he really knows is going to be where he's supposed to be when he's supposed to get there. And I think that's exactly what happened with Atlanta. So uh, we uh, we just became like we worked. Uh, we were as one. We were a unit. Uh, and so, and I know in games, he because he was given the responsibility of calling plays. We Bubank had enough sense to recognize a instinctive play caller in Unitas. And uh, he let John call the plays. And you know, I wasn't old enough or mature enough to understand, but uh, unanimous, no question about the fact, in the heat of games, a lot of times he'd call, call me on some play because he knew I was going to be there when I was supposed to be there, and he knew I was going to catch it. Lenny Moore, we well, talked a couple months ago, and he gave you the ultimate compliment. He said, I became a great receiver because of Raymond Berry. Raymond told me, you're going to stay after practice and work with Johnny and me, and we're going to learn, you're going to learn how to play wide receiver. Well, that uh, is exactly what happened. And, uh, Lenny, you know, uh, uh, work after practice with John Unanis ended up, uh, the result was exactly the same as it was with me. Uh, I think that, you know, this type of, of after work practice work was exactly one reason why we won two world championships in Baltimore. Because if you look at the nature of the games that we played against the New York Giant defense, which was a leading defense in the league, uh, key play after key play came on plays that we had perfected and talked about and worked on after practice till they were automatic. And in the heat of a game, you know, those things just came up and happened. And uh, it wasn't any accident. And... Uh, but that, uh, that after-practice work and uh, working with the quarterback, you know, and gaining that confidence of him was the whole key to it. Don't tell Frank Gifford. He thinks that 58 championship was won because the ref gave a bad spot of the ball when he was running the ball. Well, you know, uh, I've heard uh, Frank, uh, you know, talk about that, and I think he really believes that. And I think that, uh, you know, the – I looked at the film very closely, and uh, I really disagree with him. I don't think the official missed the uh, missed the spot of the ball at all. I think uh, Frank hit the ground and bounced, and I think uh, Frank thought that where he bounced to was, you know, where it should have been put. But actually, when you hit the ground, that's it, and uh, the bounce don't count after that. Now, in that 1958 championship game, Colts against the Giants, as a player. Could you feel that this was something special, or, or did you have to wait for a little time to go by to understand the importance of that contest and, and what it meant for the growth of the NFL? Uh, I don't think any of us uh, had a clue. I don't think we were old enough to understand uh, at all. I don't think we had a clue. I think we were just thrilled to death that uh, – uh, you know, we were able to win the game, and uh, the, all the uh, all the history and the significance of it. Uh, you know, now I don't. I'm not saying that there was that some people didn't understand it. I think there were some people that did, and I think that uh, I think the man that really understood it. And this came out years later uh, as I began to piece together a chain of events. I think the man that really understood the significance of that game immediately was Burt Bell, the commissioner of the league. And uh, I saw him after the game. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the circumstances were, but I saw him face-to-face very shortly after that game was over. And there was a memory of his face that just kind of got imprinted on my memory bank, and it was 
Burt Bell had tears in his eyes and he was crying. And, uh, you know, I, uh, it just kind of registered and I saw his face and then went on about my business. But, uh, that picture of him and that face and his tears in his eyes stayed with me. And years later, I don't begin to put it together. Burt Bell understood that this league that he'd been nursing around for several years, doing everything he could to bring it to prominence, he knew that his baby just got born. Who decided that the game was going to go into overtime and not end in a tie? The rule book had been uh, structured that someone along the line had uh, realized that in a championship game they had to have some policy for a tie game and so the NFL uh, and I just use the word NFL I don't know specifically the person or persons responsible for arriving at that particular rule but it was in the rule book and of course nothing like that ever happens nobody even knew about it and uh, the the head referee in that game was a veteran referee and he knew the rule because I remember out there on the field when that game ended in a tie, we all thought that the game was over. And uh, we went to our benches and thinking, no, this is a tie game. We didn't know anything about overtime. Nobody ever talked about it. And that official came over to the bench and explained to Coach Eubank, uh, you know, the procedure. And that's whenever we realized, hey, we're going to keep playing. And... uh I don't know that any of us really realized the the significance of sudden death. You know, uh, all we knew was that we were going to keep playing. So we went out on the field when we got the ball and went about our business without really realizing uh, the significance of what was happening. And uh, the I know that uh, you know the the Giants won that toss and got the ball. Our defense stopped them. They punted and we were 80 yards out. And, uh, you know, we had this awareness of the fact that there wasn't a time factor now. We weren't fighting the clock anymore. So uh, we were 80 yards out, and it was 17 to 17 game, uh, whatever it was. Anyway, uh, yeah, 17 to 17. And so Unanus then comes into the huddle, and he just methodically starts uh, mixing, running, pass, and, you know, he moved the darn football 80 yards. Uh, and when we get in field goal range, you know, a lot of people later on had this big question, why didn't you kick the field goal? Why didn't you kick the field goal? Well, I, you know, I was out there on the field with Unitas watching him being, a, you know, under his spell, I guess what you'd say without even realizing it. Because uh, we Viewbank had given John the authority and the free reign to call the game. And so in this particular situation, Unanus wouldn't, he, the last thing on his mind was getting a field goal. He's going to put that ball in the end zone. And he just mixed running pass. Well, I think with 13 different plays, I don't know, five or six passes, seven, eight runs, something like that, and, uh, and moved it, you know, all the way in. And Amici went in, you know, for the final three or four or five yards to score. And as soon as that happened, maybe the game was over when, uh, and we all turned and started running for the clubhouse. And, and there wasn't any extra point because the, right. the, the official had explained first team scores wins. And uh, so Amici puts it, you know, he scores. The game's over, 23-17, uh, I guess. And on the final drive, you had a couple of receptions. you recall those plays? Yeah. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, I didn't really realize at the time, but uh, – Without question, this game was the greatest game that I ever played. It was, uh, uh, as I said, I wasn't doing things of doing. And we had a very basic, simple offense. We didn't really, you know, I had about four or five pass plays. That was all we had. We weren't doing anything complicated. And this this uh, simplicity was the genius of Weeb Eubank. One of the things that I have found uh over the years, uh, there's a little saying that's, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I think my dad, as a Texas high school football coach, was very, it was exactly like Wee Bubank. 
he made a decision about how many plays he was going with, and that was, that was all he did. He didn't do much. And uh, I know I played under him, and we just beat a bunch of teams because we could execute. And uh, this is exactly what we at Eubank, uh, that was his philosophy. You know, he had just a very few plays, but we knew how to run them. And, uh, but one of the phrases that's developed in my head over the years is that I think it takes a genius to keep it simple. Pat Summerall, who just passed away, mentioned that after that game, you guys basically had a pickup game in the park. So a lot of the players, were you part of that game? Yeah, se- se- several several years later, I don't know, uh, I don't know, maybe it was, uh, I'm trying to think how many years later it was, it was at least five years, because I think I was, uh, it may have been even longer than that, because I, I don't think I was in coaching at the time. And, uh, you know, heard about the reenactment of the game. And uh, so, uh, but I was still, as an assistant coach in our coaching years, uh, I kept working out and running there for several years. And so whenever we got the word that they they wanted to do this reenactment of this game in Central Park in New York, well, uh, you know, I was still able to, Run pretty darn good, and uh, and the Giants were our team that was five and six years older than we were. You know when we played them in '58. So this number of years later, whatever year it was, I forget when. Uh, you know all these players are getting five and six years older, is getting a bigger gap. So, but out there on the field that day, uh, I could run darn near full speed, and uh, so. And John and I just, you know, we hadn't been on the field together in, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And, uh, and we started running those routes. I mean, it was like we were, you know, like there hadn't even been any break. We were just, I told I was, you know, working out there. And during that little game, I, I came back and huddled just like I used to when I was playing. I told him, this is what I can get open on. And he'd call it. And we'd run it and complete it, you know. <laughs> it was just kind of a replay of the earlier game, you know, in a way. It was very interesting to me as a coach that this big years, several years gap happens, and Johnny Nines and I step on the field in this one afternoon, and he is putting the ball right on the money, just like we were when we were playing. And that was a – you just would never figure that could be the case. You had a reputation for phenomenal hands. Is, is that something that's physical, mental, a combination of the two? How does it work? Well, uh, this is how it works. First of all, I think you're you're born with it. I think it's a physical gift at birth. I think it has something to do with heredity. Uh, for example, my dad, who was only five foot eight and probably weighed about 155 pounds, but he had big hands and big feet. And whenever I was born, I ended up being 6'2", you know, 185. And I got big hands and big feet. I got them from my dad. And uh, from the very earliest time I started playing football, I could catch the football without even thinking. It was just a natural gift. And uh, so when I got to the professional level and taking the fastballs at the speed with which Unitas was throwing, I found that I was dropping footballs that I should have been catching. So early, very early in my years with Unitas, I started really practicing catching like I'd never done before. And over a period of a couple of years, I really studied catching uh, all the different type of catches. And I ended up with a list of 12, ball, 12 different situations in the short ball. Six different situations in the long ball. There's 18 different drills. And uh, so, uh, you know, you got low ball, high ball behind you, too far left, too far right, uh, et cetera. And uh, so uh, I just started drilling, and I would catch 60, 70 balls a day. I'd go right down that list, catching three or four of each type. It was drill and repetition, drill and repetition. It's the exact same thing you do whenever you take a typing course as a high school kid. You don't know anything about typing. Your hands have never done it, but they put you on a, a routine where you go through it every day 
drill and repetition, drill and repetition, and time the semester's over with, you know how to type. And you don't ever forget it. And uh, I see the same parallel in catching. If you drill, drill, drill on catching the high one over your left shoulder, then more than likely in a game you'll you'll catch the high one over your left shoulder. How does a guy with size 12 feet develop such good footwork? Well, the uh, I think there's a couple of things really uh, helped me on uh, footwork. One is... Uh, when I got to the high school level my senior year, then when I got in college, I ran track every year I was in uh, in college, five years. I worked with the sprinters, and uh, whatever they did, I did. I think uh, I developed uh, speed and quickness uh, during those years because uh, it was just a lot of heavy speed work. And you do it over and over and over and over. You get faster, you get quicker. And then... Uh, Whenever I, uh, uh, at some point, I developed these drills for uh, footwork. And uh, I'm trying to remember now when it first started, but I would uh, backpedal and backpedal fast. And then I would, I would go, I'd be backpedaling, and then I would twist to my left and go three or four steps, crossing over. Then I'd twist, twist to my right and crossing over. But I was... Uh, I had a whole routine of quickness drills that I developed, and uh, I did those on a regular basis, especially in the off season. I did them over and over, and uh, there's no question that uh, <clears throat> my speed began to increase because uh, I was still growing physically. You know, when I went into professional football, I don't think I really quit growing physically. You know, after two years, I probably finally leveled off, but. Uh, in the first two three years that I played, the off seasons were spent uh, starting in uh, February March. I started working out, and I worked out February March April May June July, and then went to training camp in July. And uh, so I'm running and doing all these agility drills and quickness drills, and uh, I couldn't find anybody to throw to me, so I had a hard time, uh, you know, working on catching. Uh, but the the Footwork, the quickness, the speed, and I just didn't realize, you know, I was getting such a high level of conditioning and uh, strength that uh, I just hardly ever, uh, I, I didn't get injured. And I never, I went through most of my pro career without even getting hurt. What was it like when you found out you were going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Well, I was coaching, uh, I believe I was at the University of Arkansas and. uh 1973 when I got word about it and uh, it was my first year of, to be eligible uh, you know for the Pro Football Hall of Fame and uh, I wasn't surprised because uh, you know when I retired as a player uh, actually the that's the sixth seventh year in the league uh, I broke the NFL record for receptions and then broke the record for yardage and uh, uh, and then when I retired uh, as a player I was uh, I held the record for the most passes caught in a career I think most yardage gained to a receiver in a career and uh, so whenever the you know uh, year came up I, I knew pretty well I was going to be put in the Pro Bowl Hall of Fame I wasn't really surprised what defensive back gave you the most trouble? There were five or six of them uh, over. You know, I played 13 years, so I came up against some great ones. And uh, I think, uh, you know, right off the top of my head and trying to do it in chronological order, uh, Abe Woodson of the 49ers. Uh, and by the way, two of the four or five I'm going to name were 100-yard dash sprint champions in the Big Ten. Uh, Woodson at Illinois. Abe Woodson came out of Illinois, and he uh, right. he was a uh, I think he won the hundred yard dash in the Big Ten track, and uh, you know he had tremendous uh, speed. And uh, so when he came to the Forty ers they put him over at the corner, and so I faced him. I don't know at least five years in a row, uh, twice a year, and uh, he. Uh, 
he tried to cover me conventional for a while, like line up at five or six yards off, and that didn't work for him. So he he really introduced the bump and run on me, and he he walked up on me. Uh, the first time he did it, he walked up on me and just got right in front of me, you know, like a yard off. And uh, but he didn't understand uh, that he was uh, not keeping me from getting inside on him, so. First time he did it, we just completed a bunch of passes inside. In the second game of that season, then he walked up there on me, and he got inside of me. He was going to cut me off from getting inside. And that gave me some puzzlement for, I don't know, two, three, four quarters there. I, I couldn't figure out exactly what I could do because the guy could run. He was right up there on me. And uh, I didn't know what to tell John I could do. I wasn't real sure what I could do. Eventually, what I began to realize is, we had to beat him deep, and we had to beat him deep every time he walked up there, and that's what we started doing. Uh, I'd give him three or four moves in the first five yards, and then we'd uh, we timed a, a deep pass that uh, I could catch it, you know, fading away toward the boundary, and uh, he had a hard time covering that one. But I couldn't get anything short on him, so we just had to go deep. Irv Cross uh, was the next guy I think about, and Irv brought a whole different uh, – problem to me because that guy was big. Abe Woodson only weighed about 100 and, I don't know, 75 pounds maybe. And so when there was a collision, I would win the collision. With uh, with Irv Cross, he weighed about a 195, and he was also one to 100-yard dash in the Big Ten. And uh, he tried to cover me conventional the first time or two I played, and and I ate him alive. So he tr- tried. He, didn't, he walked up our arm and started taking me on right over the line of scrimmage, and uh, he gave me a fit trying to get away from him because, uh, you know, when he had the collision, uh, I lost the collision, then I tried to outrun him, and he won the race. So for a couple of games there, I had a one heck of a time trying to figure out how in the world to get open on this guy. And uh, so he, uh, uh, Dick Lynch of the New York Giants was another one that uh, he was very smart, and he studied you, he knew that. But he also crowded you. He came up and he crowded you. He'd take you on early, and and you had to. You just couldn't run conventional patterns on him. And uh, but he was. He knew what he was doing, and he could run. And he wasn't real big either. So when collisions came, I, I didn't come away with anything worse than a tie. And sometimes I win the collision. Curve cross. I couldn't win the collision. And. Uh, but those three right there, uh, Jesse Woodman with the Green Bay Packers came along and um, with Lombardi's teams, and uh, he 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 was tough to get away from because he is another guy. He had lined up about five or six yards deep, but he'd only backpedal about a yard and he'd just squat. And so when you got down there, he had he was sitting there waiting on you, and uh, it took away all your conventional stuff and. So it took me a while to figure out how to beat Jesse, and uh, and going deep on a guy like that was, was the other thing that uh, he just had uh, developed a deep ball. And John and I were pretty good at timing a deep ball, so we uh, did have something against him. But those four guys were very, very challenging. Did you enjoy coaching when you went into coaching, uh, head coaching with the Patriots? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the uh, the formula about enjoying coaching. It's a very simple formula. <laughs> you get you get great are, are you are you ready? Yes. If you yes. if you get great if you get great players you enjoy coaching. <laughs> and when I, when, I, when, I, when I inherited the New England Patriots job, uh, I don't know if you know the story or not, but uh, I'd been out of coaching uh, over two years, and I was living. I was living in uh, in Boston, working. Uh, I had a friend there that had a business, and he hired me. And I was working for him, and so I was making a living outside of coaching. I wasn't even thinking about ever getting back in again. I've been fired too many times. But I was tired of it, and uh, so uh, the uh, Patriots uh, fired Ron Meyer right in the middle of the season. This was 1984. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, <laughs> so I get this phone call. Understand, I'm I've been out of coaching now for two two and a half years. I'm making a living. I'm perfectly happy, and I know enough about the coaching profession. No, I ain't missing it. And so 
Pat Sullivan gives me a call and says, I'd like to come over and talk to you. <laughs> uh, so he came over to the house and talked, and he said, we're going to fire Ron Meyer. And uh, they had six games left on our schedule that year. And uh, so he said, we're going to fire Ron Meyer. He said, I'm offering you the job. So uh, I said, well, Pat, I'll call you in the morning. It was my... Uh, decision about it and uh, I thought about it long and hard because oh you've been in the coaching business long enough you know the drill and uh, I was you know tired of getting fired and moved and uh, so I thought about it and I thought I think I need to do this and um, so I gave him a call and said okay I'm coming over and coming to work so I drove over there and uh Walked in as a new head coach of the New England Patriots with uh, six game, eight games left on their schedule. And uh, I hadn't been in coaching for two and a half years. Uh, I don't know anybody on the coaching staff. Maybe I think one guy I knew who was. It was Ron Meyer's staff. Uh, I knew about six veteran players on the team. All the rest of them were new ones that had been brought in since I had been uh, let go uh previous few years, whatever. So, uh, and this is a Thursday when I'll go in there and go to work. They got a game against uh, the Jets coming up on Sunday there in New England. That's how I, that's how I got back in the coaching business. Is, uh, I didn't have anything to do with it. And uh, I inherited, and I started looking at this football team and trying to get familiar with the, the players. Everywhere I looked, was talent and depth, and I thought to myself, "Good grief! This football team—they got everything you need to make a run for a championship." Good grief! They got depth. They had two quarterbacks, Steve Grogan and Tony Eason. Two of them, both of them, you could win with. And on a 16-game schedule in the NFL, you better have two because trying to get one of them through it healthy is a major accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And then they were. We had four great wide receivers, two fine tight ends, and we had an offensive line that was as good as anybody could hope to get in depth there. And then on defense, we had four great corners that could cover anybody man-to-man, three great safeties and slew of linebackers. And we had uh, good defensive linemen. Uh, I mean, this team was loaded. I thought to myself, good grief, what have I inherited here? This team can uh, they can run with the horses. And uh, so uh, that's, the, that's the team that I inherited with eight games left as I started learning and getting familiar with the personnel. I think uh, I think during that four eight-game stretch, I think we won four and lost four or something like that, if I remember right. Uh, and then you make a the, Super Bowl uh, in your second year. Well, what we did in the off season, you know, by the time the off season had arrived, I realized what we had, and and I uh, when the season ended, I told all the coaching staff, all of whom had been you know brought there by Ron Meyer, I, said, I told all of them, I said, now I'm going to hire my own coaching staff now. I said, any of you guys can apply for the job. And I will hire some of you. I said, but when it's all over and done with, you're going to be on my staff. And so uh, it was about two or three of them, you know, did apply, and I kept them. And uh, and there were two or three of them that left. And uh, and the good part about it was. Because uh, I knew this team was ready to run, and if, if we could just keep it simple, because the biggest problem you got with taking over a new team is uh, the learning process that a team's got to go through to learn the systems. And it, you just can't operate at full physical abilities whenever you're trying to learn and you're in a learning mode. And the first year, a lot of times, is not productive because you just can't go on all cylinders 
But the special teams coach, I kept him so we didn't have to change the special teams system. The defensive coordinator was Rod Rust, and I kept him, and we didn't have to change our defensive system. Their offensive system was not good enough to win in the NFL, and I knew it after I took a look at it. So I hired uh, a new offensive uh, staff. And in the offseason, uh, we installed the new offense. And uh, so when training camp came, our big learning problem was offense. And uh, and it showed up in our early games. I think after uh, six games or eight games, we were about playing 500 football in the first half of the season. But then they began to get it. And then uh, we got on a roll and won eight or nine in a row, I think. And uh, to get to the Super Bowl, but when we went into the Super Bowl, we had a first-year offense, and it was A B C, and I'm not real sure it was even C, but it was A and B. It was that simple and that basic. But the theory was, and it wasn't just theory because I've been around long enough to know it, is that if you got great players, don't confuse them, and let the physical abilities flow and if you put too much on their minds and it ain't going to work so i knew i had great players and i didn't want to screw them up so we just went a and b and it did us well all the way to the super bowl now the problem with an a and b offense when you come up against a phd defense you got a problem and we couldn't score against the chicago bears they had a defense they've been putting it together for five years and they had a defensive-minded coach over there named Buddy Ryan that was as good as it gets in the NFL. And they had a great defense with great personnel and a great defensive scheme, and our little A-B offense just was not up to uh, handling the Ph.D. defense, so we couldn't score and got our butt beat. People give Ditka credit for winning that Super Bowl. I think that was Buddy Ryan's team that won that Super Bowl. Well, uh, there's no question about the fact that – the uh, Buddy Ryan defense, uh, I think all you do is look up the numbers. Uh, it was, it really, and I've looked at the NFL since the 50s, and I would rank the Chicago Bear defense in 1985 in the top four or five that I've ever seen. I'd say that I'd rank the Pittsburgh Steelers defenses under Chuck Noll and uh, you know, their defensive coach uh, up there, uh, Bud Carson. I would rank that is the best defense I've ever seen. And I would uh, put the, the, the Tom Landry's Dallas Cowboy defenses, uh, they're in that ranking up there. And uh, George Allen with the Washington Redskins was a defensive genius. And uh, he was with the Chicago Bears you know, when they won the World Championship, and he went to head coach there. Playing against George Allen's defense was a full day's work. Those are four or five of the best. Buddy Ryan is as good as any of them. I heard somewhere that the finalists for the Bears job in 82 were Mike Ditka and George Allen, and Hallis was deciding between the two, and he was still mad at George Allen for leaving him in the 60s, and that's why he hired Ditka. I, I don't really know the story of, about it uh, at all. I just I know... Uh, I know that playing George Allen's teams, whether it was with the Bears or the Rams or the Redskins, uh, you had your work cut out for you because they knew they were reading your mail all the time. And uh, he he was just an absolute uh, defensive genius and uh, in no way, shape, or form otherwise. And uh, Buddy Ryan, uh, his, his defensive scheme was right there with him, and uh, I said Tom Landry was uh, in that group also, uh, and Bud Carson, you know, and Chuck Noll. There's, uh, and I, I, w- I had the dubious privilege of being to places where I had to face all those guys. I was with Forrest Gregg and the Cleveland Browns for two years, and we had to play uh, the Steelers twice a year. And uh, I saw them up close and personal for two years, and uh, good grief, they had had personnel and a scheme that was just a great defense. You speak about quarterbacks, 
Mel Blunt, uh, if you want, if you want to have a nightmare as a receiver, just go up against that guy all day. <laughs> Who do you think the best player to ever play in the NFL was? Brown and John Unanis. Those two. I think they're in a class by themselves. The, the people that never saw Jim Brown, I don't think, have an appreciation for how outstanding he really was. I mean, he was larger than some of the the linemen he was going up against. Uh, he he, just, he was he, he should have been outlawed. <laughs> oh, oh gosh! Oh, but you probably wouldn't have minded having him in the backfield if you're uh, on his team. <laughs> uh, he was uh, he was some. He was so good that Hall of Fame players, their favorite plays are when they were able to tackle him. You talk to Sam Huff, he's got a picture of when he was able to tackle Jim Brown. Bob Lilly? I would have to I would have to argue with Sam on that. First thing I'd say to Sam was, Sam, did you doctor this picture? <laughs> that was that was before they had Photoshop, of course. That would be legitimate. Uh, and, and, yeah, nice. and the other guy is Bob Lilly. He's got a picture of him tackling him or chasing him down. But I think uh, Brown tripped on that play. <laughs> Uh, that always helps you if you just trip, but I don't remember seeing it. He, we played him up there in Baltimore. It was 1959. If I, we won the world championship that year. And uh, played Cleveland there in Baltimore. Jim Jim Brown has scored five touchdowns. <laughs> they beat us 35 to 28, I think. I, I know one guy that didn't try to chase him down was Gino Mar- or not Gino Marchetti, Art Donovan. <laughs> Uh, oh, that's you know you'll have to give you can't believe anything Art says. He still he talks. Is. He still he still talks. He still talks about that chicken eating contest with Gino Marchetti. Now, when you can believe, <laughs> it had anything to do with eating. He won all those cases. Another great show today, Elliot. We had Miss May, Kristen Nicole. The only bad part was she wasn't in studio. Maybe next time. And Raymond Berry, Pro Football Hall of Famer. Another great job by Dave Olson on the boards. I'm David Spada here with Elliot Harris. And thanks for listening to Sports and Ports on TalkZone.com.